0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse speaking with you this week from my family's farm near Westmoreland, Kansas. From my perspective, now that our record breaking Godzilla El Nino is officially dead, and it seems like there aren't that many coral reefs left to bleach, there is one main climate story for the rest of 2016 the Arctic. Sea ice loss is easily imagined. I mean, polar bears are the poster species of climate change for a reason. The first half of 2016 has been so warm, especially in the Arctic, that this year is now a shoe-in for our planet's warmest on record. But no one, especially not me, can fathom exactly what's going on up in the Arctic right now. Snow and ice are disappearing from the Arctic region at unprecedented rates, leaving behind open water that's much less reflective to incoming sunlight than ice. That, among other factors, is causing the northern polar region of our planet to warm at a much faster rate than the rest of the northern hemisphere, a phenomenon known as Arctic amplification. And over the past several months, it's becoming increasingly obvious that big changes are happening now, right now, not 5 or 10 or 20 years from now, now. So far this year, Alaska's statewide temperature is 10 degrees above normal. As of June 29th, we've reached 93 consecutive days of record-setting low Arctic sea ice, the longest streak in history. We're breaking records at the amount that we're breaking records. So we have at the moment, shall we say, a lot to talk about. So let's get right to it. Joining me from Orono, Maine, is Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Eric. And we have Andy Revkin of the New York Times- who's also a senior fellow for environmental understanding at Pace University, joining us from Santa Fe, New Mexico. He spoke this morning to a room full of geologists about the Anthropocene, the idea that we're creating a sufficient mark in Earth's geological record to constitute our own geological epoch.
1: Good to be here and to be here.
0: And maybe the story that's on everyone's mind this week, uh, relatedly, is the season finale of Game of Thrones. Uh, Vox, Mashable, a few others have had a theory for a while now that Game of Thrones is a parable about climate change. Here's the gist. We've got an obvious existential threat, and humanity just seems determined not to take action. So Jacqueline, it seems like you're kind of our, our Game of Thrones expert in this podcast, so... Um, uh, give give us your theory uh, about what um, what's going on. What, how is this related to climate change?
2: <laughs> uh, anything's related to climate change, or I guess I should say you could you could make anything related to Game of Thrones if you try hard enough, um, because it's such a sprawling story. Um, but no, I was I was actually really disappointed to to learn that this was not a novel idea on my part. But just this you know this idea of winter is coming, winter is coming. The the words of of House Stark. Um and uh one you know this isn't really a spoiler, but in the finale, finally winter is here, and this idea that um this 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 thing that is off in the distance, it doesn't really affect most people um it's it's kind of kind of told or talked about as this abstract concept. And it's usually associated with a sort of pessimism, right? Like winter is coming, you know, we have to be prepared for the worst. And it becomes easy for everyone else in the Game of Thrones world to just sort of dismiss this idea of the imminent winter. And uh, except for the people who are right on the front lines, right? And that just clicked for me. And it sounded so familiar, this idea of, you know, climate change, climate change, climate change is coming. Climate change is happening. It's going to affect you. And for most people, I feel like they're all sitting in, you know, the palaces of the warm south uh, of Westeros, you know, sipping their wine and watching jousting tournaments and thinking, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about that. It's not real. Or if it is real, it will only affect the people in the north. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal. It's just old, old tales and, and negativity. Uh, so in this yeah. case,
0: the jousting tournaments are, is Game of Thrones itself. it Seems like <laughs> in, in our world. <laughs>
2: yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, I
0: mean, you 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 turn you turn on the internet, and pretty much everything you get is Game of Thrones these days. Yeah.
2: Like. <laughs> Although uh, you know, a few of us actually last week um, wrote some some scientists and science journalists wrote a series of blog posts about the science of Game of Thrones, and I wrote a post about how. The wall, which is this giant seven hundred foot wall of ice that completely blocks off the northern part of the of the continent it, it was based on hadrian 's wall in in the British Isles. Um, how the wall is going to affect the biodiversity, so there are mammoths north of the wall, and what 's going to happen to them when climate changes when winter comes they won 't have anywhere to go they won 't be able to migrate south of the wall and then they will go extinct because the wall is there uh, so I, I wrote a, a blog post about that so I don't know. Um I I think it's a it's a, it's it's a topic on everyone's mind, but um and it might seem kind of trite to to connect it to to real-world issues, but I'm a firm believer in the power of science fiction and fantasy for social commentary. So, I think it works.
1: Well, there's one other aspect of it that that caught my attention right away um in the books and then in the series and it's just <laughs> it illustrates what a wonderful sense it provided at the beginning that no one knew in any particular year whether winter was going to be a year or two months or or or, or a thousand years and I just love that as a way to um, get us to think about how lucky you are that we have predictable seasons and that also the value of science I think is illustrated and you know the Game of Thrones is kind of a pre-scientific um, uh, planet like we had not too long ago and Uh, By observing things, you could start to get a sense of pattern and understanding that might um, motivate people more. But but again, that's still an open question. In fact, the meeting I'm at here, the Quaternary Association, it's people who have studied the last two million years and want to figure out how to make themselves relevant to the next two million, (laughs) meaning to what societies decide. And there's a lot of uncertainty about that.
0: So so what wait what's what's worse a pre-scientific society or a scientific society that ignores that science so cuz it seems like we're in the latter somewhat right now. Well
1: I think one one uh one beneficial trait regardless is um agility and the 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 ability to recognize a signal once it's uh, evident and and act uh, creatively and you know I think Game of Thrones as as uh, Jacqueline has pointed out I think it is a good parable because so far we're still as societally there's very little sign that humans even as we've gotten more understanding of the earth system than they certainly than they have in game of thrones uh, we still uh, don't haven't sort of evolved the uh, capacity to deal with um, sort of some of those signals and with time scales it's really um so all that if it gets you thinking along those lines i think that's a good thing sure
2: yeah I actually really like what Andy just said about uncertainty too because that's something that we really struggle with right like in in the game of thrones universe you don't know when winter is coming and there are kind of warning signs and you know the the scholars of of that world try to look for those signs but you really don't know when the critical transition is coming until after it's happened and you're, but yet you want to prepare for winter, right? You want to put food away because if it does last a thousand years or, you know, a thousand generations or however long, um, then you need to have some planning, you know, you can't prevent it from coming, but you can respond. So this idea of how do you act when there there's this high degree of uncertainty and how do you even talk about something when there's a high degree of uncertainty, I think makes it a really apt metaphor.
1: This is actually getting richer than I had thought, uh, this this line. I'm going to offer one other thing that came up today at the meeting, Jeremy Shacken from Boston College, who's part of a recent group, did a very important paper on the multimillennial certainty of new, you know, sea levels rising, and uh, for ten thousand years, um, with only the extent of the rise unclear. Uh, he and others here um, were also still articulating that the short term is still highly uncertain. How fast the rate change, the change in the rate of sea level rise, is the. The least certain thing, part of which relates to the Arctic. It's about those big piles of ice uh, on Greenland and, and also in the Antarctic, uh, and that's a durable a durable uncertainty that does take us basically back to the Game of Thrones and where you don't know you're in a long winter till you're in it in a way. And I think ja- Jacqueline's really hit on something valuable here.
0: Yeah, and so and this is timely too, believe it or not, because we. Um... Uh, you know, I guess the parallel is that the for our world would be summer is coming, you know, an, etern- some, an eternal summer or um, at least warmer temperatures, of course. Um, and this past week was the summer solstice. So um, it's now 24 hours a day of daylight in the Arctic. This is peak melt season. Uh, latest numbers I've seen show we're still on a record setting pace. We're still a few days ahead of 2012, which is the previous lowest sea ice extent in the arctic and we're more than a month ahead of of what was considered normal just 30 years ago for the arctic um so uh andy i, I know that you wrote a book about the arctic um several years ago now but um i want to know what it was like for you to be up there to do research for that book and to to be around the people that are on the front lines of this research
1: it was uh... Unbelievably interesting and exciting and unnerving. Um, Started really in the year 2000 when I heard about this, um, I first wrote about Arctic sea ice changes. um, And I heard about this group based out of University of Washington that were setting up an annual trek, well, an annual flight to the North Pole sea ice. Uh, And of course, one of the challenges there that you don't have in Antarctica is there's no there there here. They have to camp on the sea ice floating on the Arctic ocean. Uh, and the ice is drifting all the time. So each year it's a new setup. Um, they dropped instruments to the ocean bed, um, come back a year later, pick them up and get the data. Really cool. It took me three years. It took until 2003 for the, uh, opportunity to actually come. The NSF, uh, uh, had some budgeting for two seats for journalists. Uh, it was me and Alex Witsey at the time it was at the Dallas newspaper. And, uh, we uh, spent three days uh, and, and daylight nights with the scientists um, at the North Pole on the ice. The title of my book that I ended up writing a few years later, for, for mostly for young adults, was the North Pole was here because, and it looks like everyone who goes to the North Pole has to come with a sign that says North Pole is here, you know, like one of those goofy signs that everyone, the Russians had one, The the uh, everyone comes with like a barber pole. Uh, and the scientists. Yeah. It, didn't one.
0: the Russians plant one on the Arctic seabed a few years ago?
1: Yeah. A few years later, they they went down in submarines to to um, declare um, their uh, their right to the, that part of the Arctic. And I've written tons more about that. But when you're on the sea ice, it's an unbelievable uh, experience because it's it's all in motion. the The title of the book was North Pole Was Here because. They had to scribble the sign out after two days. From North Pole is to North Pole was because we we're moving uh, several miles a day, and the ice under you is also making sounds. It's the, these ice flows are crunching into each other. Uh, um, there's uh, audio and on YouTube there's video. If you just search for Revkin and North Pole, you can find that. That just it's like the sounds are ungodly. They're squeaking. It's like the sound of putting the styrofoam lid on a cooler, but but times a thousand and, and then rumbling sounds as the ice is kind of crunching and making these ridges. And the dynamics of it, I think is something people don't understand that everyone talks about the ice cap. It's nothing like a cap and and you're on an ocean that's 14,000 feet deep. And there's still very limited understanding about the dynamics of the ocean underneath that ice. And that's what this um, project was trying to figure out. It's really an amazing experience.
0: And, um, at Jekyll we've had, you know, this is where your work sort of focuses some of your work on uh the last ice age where where i am in kansas right now you know walk out in the pastures um and you can see glacially transported rocks um that were deposited you know only short while ago in geological terms so it um we we've had you know obviously ice ages in the past where the arctic looks totally different than what it does now and in um What would be a normal transition out of an ice age and what is different about what's happening now? Yeah.
2: I mean, it's, it's, so it's interesting because you want to draw those conclusions, right? The, when did we come out of the last ice age? We knew it must've gotten warmer. How did everything respond? But if you think about it, the baselines are so different. Um, the starting point, you know, the Arctic would have been under three miles of ice, um, at the end of the last ice age, and everything we think of as the Arctic ecosystem would be in, like you said, Kansas, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, Illinois, that would have been the tundra. That's where all the tundra plants and animals would be hanging out. When you've got a giant ice sheet covering half of North America, as it's melting, the tundra can, the the plants and animals living in the tundra can follow that ice sheet, right? They can colonize that newly uh, deglaciated habitat, they've got somewhere to go. But when you're at the top of the world, there's nowhere to go. So it's, it's similar to the situation of a, of species living on mountaintops, right? Once, once you hit, you can track climate as you move up the mountain slope, but at a certain point, you're going to go right off the top of the mountain and there's, there's, there's just no more habitat. Um, and so if you're a tundra species, that's, that's what you're what you're looking at, you're, you don't necessarily have anywhere to go. So that's a, that's a really big difference or the, the first one that I think of. So is um, this
0: what we're talking about with polar bears now? I know you love polar bears, so just like going off the northern edge of, of North America.
2: Well, first of all, uh, I, I, did make a Twitter promise that I wouldn't talk about the great white Arctic bears that live, uh, in, on the sea ice and, and fish and no, but in, in all seriousness, um, I, I think, uh, you know, when, when Eric, when you first suggested that we do one of our first shows on the Arctic, I I actually did kind of inwardly groan a little bit because people are so, I think, desensitized to talking about the Arctic um, and yeah, the plight of the polar bears. It's gotten to the point where, you know, at science meetings now, sometimes we even hear jokes about, oh no, the polar bears, you know, because people are just, are just hit over the head with this hammer of polar bears. And now I've already said the word like four times that I swore I wouldn't say, Um but yeah, I know. So this it it makes it, I think, harder to talk about the Arctic because of um, it's it's been sort of the poster child of climate change for such a long time. I think we've become desensitized to it. But, you know, one thing I think is important to an important counterpoint to what I just said is that, you know, there's a wide range of of or the species who live in the Arctic have adapted to a really wide range of temperatures. And in some ways, they're well adapted to global change. Of all the species, you know, that we have, say, in the Northern Hemisphere, the things that live in the Arctic are used to the widest range of conditions. They've had to travel the furthest um, out of their glacial refugia. So they're good at dispersing. They're, you know, they're really good at uh, withstanding lots of climate change, both in an annual cycle and over their evolutionary lifespan. And so on some levels, that makes me wonder if they'll be kind of more adapted to global change as long as they have somewhere to go, right? That's that's the that's the trick, right? And so I think sometimes we don't talk enough about, you know, the tropics where species are living close to thermal tolerance um, that, you know, it's, there are hard boundaries in terms of when proteins denature and things can only get so much warmer, whereas the species in the Arctic actually are remarkably well adapted to a, a really broad temperature range. And uh, so I think there's potentially some hope there, um, but, but polar bears are, are going to have a hard time, of course.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I think you saw that with this paper a couple of years ago that, that tried to put a date on each sort of ecosystem around the world or, or latitude band, where um, there were some parts of the tropics that within the next, I think, 10 to 15 years would would, would sort of warm out of their historical uh, range. The lowest normal high temperatures would be warmer than the previous warmest high temperatures. And that only takes a few degrees of change in, in the tropics. But... Well, yeah,
1: uh, it's also Jacqueline's point about um, sort of the plasticity and adaptability in the Arctic is something that I'd, I'd started to learn about uh, in my reporting. In 2007, there was a study of Arctic flora, have this, uh, as she was saying, a uh, real responsiveness to change. Um, and then uh, just last year, I did a piece about um work of Bruce Forbes, who's American but works out of Finland and studies Arctic uh, plant change. And uh, there are what, what they call pop-up forests. This is where this relates also to new work uh, showing the overall greening of, of the Arctic in recent decades. But uh, we used to think, we scientists used to think that forests would have to sort of slowly propagate as as climate changed, you know, as seeds dis- dispersal and stuff. But when you get out in the tundra, you realize when you're walking in Greenland around the edge of the ice sheet, you're walking through trees. They're just um, 15 inches tall. You know, they're willows and and, and other things like that. And these pop-up, what they're seeing is pop-up forests, basically as uh, microclimates change in certain areas, you're getting uh, nature kind of fills in the gaps and that responsiveness is is really there. The one thing I wanted to say about the tropics, and this, this gets, I think it's really, maybe we should do another sec- segment on this down the line. That's where you have the most um, other human impacts, uh, like the Amazon, there've been plenty of studies about uh, the forest does have some resilience, but if you fragment it with roads and uh then you're 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 cutting its resilience to climate uh, impacts so so that's where you have the most competition from humans of uh, fast growing populations in sub-Saharan Africa um uh, resource uh, issues in in South America you know oil extraction stuff uh, that's where the forests have all these other multiplying effects not not to mention reefs
0: yeah so we think of the arctic as being vulnerable uh but but i think the the main takeaway here is that the arctic is is potentially more resilient than we give it credit for. Um, at the same time, you know, there is vast uncertainty in the Arctic because it is a not very well um, scientifically sampled space. You know, we don't have a lot of data what's happening up there right now. Um, and that can give rise to both conspiracy theories on 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 either side. You know, there's this talk about... Um, uh, releasing massive reserves of methane from the permafrost, and there's also like like you mentioned, Andy, there is um, one uh, strand of climate denial that focuses on the the greening of the Arctic as being a good thing. You know, a, as temperatures warm and um, precipitation increases, that you're going to have a lot more biomass support um, in the northern uh, parts of the planet. So, um, how do we talk about um this try to how do how do we how do we navigate that that middle ground between um what is you know a a very extreme environment on our planet and and talk about it in context with what's happening everywhere else well i
2: think i think for me the one of the ways to talk about it is i i i don't want to say i'm not concerned about arctic biodiversity um but i what concerns me more is actually what So I'm I'm less concerned about what climate change will do to things that live in the Arctic than I am about what lives in the Arctic and what that will do to climate, Um, specifically all of the carbon that's trapped in the, the permafrost. I think it's like the top three meters of permafrost have more carbon in them than is in the atmosphere and surface vegetation combined. I mean, that's just an incredible amount of carbon. And it's been notoriously difficult to model the feedbacks that that, the release of that carbon will have on the climate system. And so it's easy to fall into the realm of hyperbole or, um, you know, just it's it's easy to, to dismiss the science anytime there's a, a large degree of uncertainty. But this is where we, you know, we, in the paleo record, there have been times where, We've had large releases of carbon, and it's hard to know where they came from. And inc- increasingly, it's looking like um, you know methane release in the Arctic uh, and carbon from permafrost are big sources of, um, of, of some of these big jumps in carbon that we've seen in the past.
0: So the idea then uh, basically is that when the average annual temperature of a specific place rises above 32 degrees Fahrenheit then uh, anything that's been trapped in that ice for how many tens of thousands of years is then released um, and we're already seeing that in in parts of, of you know Arctic Russia Arctic Canada Arctic um, United States and Alaska um, where, where there are there are places where we have demonstrated uh, permafrost melting and that is a sign that that warming is um, is it is accelerating in those places and there's already been studies to try to quantify that um, if the arctic is shifting to a net source of greenhouse gas emissions the question is how fast uh, that carbon will be released not necessarily will it be released is that yeah right?
2: yeah i definitely think that's the that's the question right is how much carbon is there how quickly can it be released And and what will be the impacts?
0: So let's say that we do hit a new low of Arctic sea ice this year. Um, There's still a ways to go before we reach a... um, largely ice-free Arctic. And I think the threshold for that is a million uh, square kilometers of of ice. That's an arbitrary threshold. There are some uh, Arctic ice forecasters that are saying that's possible this year. I wouldn't say it's likely, um, but it is likely to happen sometime, you know, in the next couple of years to decades. Um, What happens then, will will there be sort of a a shift, you know, now that that, that Greenland will become sort of the cold pole of of the north, at least in the summertime, um, will that shift things? (laughs) I mean, it seems like it would would shift weather patterns. There's already a large um, theory, you know, uh, a large avenue of, of meteorology that is exploring this, you know, shifting of the, uh, of the, of the jet stream around the northern hemisphere. And, and um uh, the jet stream, um, in some cases, is becoming um, more sluggish and blocky and um, reaching a little bit further north, uh, northward. Uh, there was a new study out a few weeks ago, um, by the University of Sheffield and a few other Institutions that that said that last year the jet stream reached the northernmost latitude ever recorded north of Greenland um, and and said that 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 helped to accelerate the ice melt season in Greenland last year. Um, We'll see more of these sort of weird things happening um, as uh, Arctic sea ice sort of retreats. And that's been a theory that's been around for a long time, so it's kind of weird to see it happening in real time um what What have you learned in your reporting on this andy
1: um well, the meteorological community seems still mixed as as you know and about carts and horses and drivers and um there's still some folks focused on Pacific sea surface temperatures as a as sort of a predicate for even some of what's being seen in the Arctic um Uh, there's the, you know, the atmospheric pressure changes. Um, I remember years and years ago when I was talking to the University of Washington people, they were talking about how atmospheric pressure changes can change, sea ice configurations, you know, moving the ice around like uh, Scrabble tiles up there, you know, where the ice, where and at what time of season you end up with open water can be a function of meteorology. In other words, which is the driver and which which is the result is interesting. And then there's this other question about in terms of winter weather, um, you know Judah Cohen's work on on um, snowfall extent uh, in the in the autumn, or sea ice uh, lack in the summer, and of course having open water means more evaporation. I, when I was up there, and the, anytime you saw open water when you were on the sea ice, you'd see this wonderful exchange of water vapor. You know, the, this like clouds of vapor rising from that hot water. You know, the water is twenty nine degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, but but really hot compared to the fifteen degree below zero air at that time when I was there, and so you get uh, you know more open water means more um, more evaporation that can be more clouds and are the clouds if you have a cloudy Arctic with open sea ice does that mean the clouds are reflective or are they trapping heat? When I talk to the modelers, they all kind of you know <laughs> get kind of caught up in those more questions than answers. Still, I guess the great thing about having I mean it's kind of you know unnerving, but great to have, if we have a new record low and then it gives them another opportunity to test these various ideas uh, to watch winter weather uh, this winter coming up uh, to see how that might bolster or weaken arguments for what's going on
0: so the consensus i'm getting is is kind of like it's not really freak out time yet i don't know if we will know is it going to be sort of like a game of thrones type thing where we won't know when to freak out until it's totally obvious that we need to freak out or will there ever be some sort of like two to three year thing that happens that will just sort of say, now we're in a new Arctic. Um, I don't know. Uh, is there a, is there a, uh, an analog to rapid Arctic change that we know a lot about Jacqueline? Well, I
2: mean, there, there are records of, of, past change in the Arctic. I mean, we know that when temperatures were higher and, and CO2 concentrations were much higher, um, it's, we're going to need a, a time in the segment when like a little sound that plays whenever I talk about the PETM, because I'll probably bring it up in every episode. But um, so during the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, when we had temperatures as much as eight degrees Celsius warmer in the northern hemisphere and, you know, double the CO2 we have now, we know that there were tropical plants growing in Wyoming. You know, fl- plants from fl- Florida show up in Wyoming in the fossil record, um, but we don't necessarily know what was, ha- you know, what happened to the Arctic plants during that time, right? Um, and so, it's, uh, you know, there the records there are records of from places in the Arctic during past interglacials, um, but the problem is we're we're rapidly kind of pushing out of of the the range of variability in the recent geologic past um and so you know once you start getting further back it gets it gets harder to make analogs um but you know we do know that rapid warming can drive uh, a large release of methane which creates a feedback that creates more warming we know that ice sheets can collapse very quickly Um, there's a, in the paleo record, there's a time known as the 8.2 event. So 8,200 years ago was the last collapse of the Laurentide ice sheet, this big ice sheet covering half of North America, um, and it, most of it melted very quickly. And there was a big pulse of sea level rise that was associated with that. And that likely took place, you know, within the lifespan of long-lived organisms. So, um, so like I said, you know, for, for, me, I'm, I'm concerned about how much carbon is in the Arctic. I'm concerned about how quickly it can be released and I'm concerned about, um, melting. I'm concerned about sea level rise, um, especially in, you know, in, in the Greenland ice sheet.
0: And Andy, it seems like you're a little bit less concerned, um, maybe not less concerned, but at least m- more aware than than I am um, of of the uncertainty that that still exists up there.
1: Well, uh, you know, this is uh, gets back to something I think I said in the first episode, which is uh, I'm profoundly uh, moved by what's underway, um, and and we are heading heading. Toward a profoundly different Arctic. Uh, uh, the timescale, you know, we're so far most of what we've been talking about is year to year, maybe decade to get decade. With that deeper context that Jacqueline's brought in valuably, but but the um, the realities of the um, emissions that are either already released or in the pipeline—that's hard to see in any way to turn off—is uh, we are absolutely heading to a new Arctic and a new a new world uh, from the tropics to the to the poles. Uh, that will with a fingerprint of our action, including our indecisions uh, that that will last not not just thousands of years but if there's again at the meeting i'm I've been at um you know people studying these long time scales say uh j j quade uh, just said, suppose there's still uh, stratigraphers fifty million years from now he was he was a, part of his talk was to look back f- from the future as they might and And he had graphs of all of the ways you'll see a profound signature of what we're doing now. But then zooming back to right now, today, as we talk and through the rest of our lifetimes, the system has enough variability and complexity to make sure that we could argue the details for a long time. And, And this is one of the real profound challenges for... For, uh, for campaigners, including scientists who really want us to change our energy habits and journalists who want us to change our energy habits like me and you. Um, it's like, so how does this work? How do, can we um, act meaningfully if, on the basis of time scales that really are, we'll never see the result, but we know um, we can modulate some of those trajectories. So so again, getting back to like, am I concerned or not? You know, this, as I said, I think the in our first round, um, this will sound weird, gloomy maybe, but to me, there's aspects of examining what to do in all of our professions and roles in society, the same way you examine your your mortal life. You know, kind of, you know, death is there, uh, but, and you know, you want to live a good life and a reasonably healthy and long life. So what do you do? You can worry every day. Or you, you know what I mean. C- should you be concerned about death every day? I, I mean, certainly, stopping at a stoplight, yes. Um, but ultimately, you have to sort of embrace the, that that finite nature. And it just as right now, this a uh, number of scientists were articulating this at this Amqua meeting. Um, we kind of have to, uh, you know, um, get comfortable with the fact that you do what you can do. But there's uh, part of this human journey is already sort of s- sat and so it's like am i concerned yes am i like depressed well you know it, it all gets back to like what do you think is possible I, I don't know it's an open question i i approach this every day as a challenge and an opportunity uh, we could talk sometime soon about josh fox's new film on climate which i think captures some of this that he's gotten away from the sort of "What was me? Shame on you!" Uh, gasland approach that he had in his fracking film, And I think there's a, lots of merits to starting to deal with what's ahead in a more constructive and uh, open way.
2: I have the solution.
1: What's the
0: solution, Jacqueline? Uh,
2: no, um, well, no, I really actually really liked Andy's answer, um, but when he talked about you know what you can do, um, it made me think. Throughout this whole conversation, I've been thinking about um, this talk I gave on uh, yesterday to the um, Mount Desert Island Biological Lab. It was a science cafe about um, cloning woolly mammoths to protect the Arctic from warming, <laughs> and uh, it, which sounds like total science fiction, but um, there are efforts to identify particular genes in the woolly mammoth genome. Folks at you know George Church's lab at Harvard are, are working on this actively. Um, other labs in Korea and Japan are trying to uh, basically build a woolly mammoth from the ground up. Um, but the idea is to take mammoth genes and insert them into a modern elephant genome and release mammothy elephants into the Arctic to protect it from, uh, basically to to prevent some of this carbon from being released due to woody plant encroachment. So the idea is that the the elephants will do what elephants do, which is knock down trees and graze and they they will prevent the movement of trees from the boreal forest into the tundra and um and yeah so if we you know there's some evidence uh, from even my research that shows that once um that that plant communities are more resilient to climate change in uh when they are when they have native herbivores grazing them than if they don't and there's work in the modern Arctic, in Greenland, actually, by Eric Post, um, that shows that in, under warmer conditions, having herbivores helps increase the resilience of your system. And so the idea is not only would the, the plants of the Arctic have a better shot at at withstanding climate change if there were native herbivores there, um, but you might also prevent some of this carbon from being released into uh, the atmosphere. If you had woolly mammoths back in the Arctic, so and this
0: is called de-extinction, right?
2: Yeah. Yep. De-extinction.
0: Yeah. So, so this is this this is is I would say firmly uh, sci-fi like, but it's not fiction. You know, there are people actually doing it. So, uh, bottom line, we're in a weird place right now. <laughs> Um okay so so we're going to close the show with a with a round table um that we're now calling positive feedback that name comes to us from Priya Shukla at Priology on Twitter and a couple of other listeners. So this is the moment in the show when we try to ease you back away from all the depressing stuff. <laughs> um so for me this is a personal one but um but yeah so we're here on uh, vacation at, at my my parents farm right now in Kansas and and my eighteen month old, um, we when drive the drive up from from Tucson is like this is like the first time that he's ever seen grass, um, naturally occurring green grass, and it was just like watching a butterfly emerge from the cocoon. Where he is just a new kid right now, and um, like the other day we were sitting out in in the yard, and there was a, a cricket. I saw a cricket, and he has this little. Um, picture book that has about 35 little animal sounds you can push a button and hear an animal sound and his favorite one was the cricket and he had never seen I don't know Maybe mean there, maybe there's not crickets in Tucson I don't know but anyway you know like half of those animals we've already seen in person for the first time in the last few days but anyway it, it's just amazing to see him see the world basically for the first time and that for me totally was an eye opener. I mean, being a parent is an eye opener anyway, and that's another whole show of of what it's like to be a parent um in a world uh where climate change is is happening. But, you know, watch, watching Roscoe play out there with the uh the thunderstorms and and the the green grass and, and and like, you know, just what I what I grew up with and and seeing this interaction is Reason number seven thousand eight hundred and forty-two. Why it's so important to work every day for me, at least, um, on on climate change. Talking about climate change, understanding what's happening, understanding how to talk about it, and and what it means to people, especially little people. Um, and and I know Andy, you had um, another uh, moment from from the meeting there. Um, in Santa Fe?
1: Well, yeah. Although, you know, it's related to, uh, I mentioned Josh Fox's um, new film, which has the most impossible title. The film is How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. It just premiered uh, on HBO recently, and it, it'll be available increasingly here and there. Um, and it was interesting, what he came to grips with, and his own learning curve, is something I've mentioned before, is uh the scope of the issue is so big that you can just freak out and curl up in a ball. He actually does that at one point in the film, or you can kind of get comfortable with that that overarching reality. And even as you work uh, uh, in whatever community you're in, or using whatever capacities you have to both um, get the carbon out of our energy system and to make societies more um, resilient to hazards that climate change attends, along with climate variability. And at the meeting here, you know, these quaternary scientists in many fields, are uh, several different papers uh, presented today, we're all on this um, uh, sort of like shifting the argument from the real-time things that take up most of our media space, you know, like what happened with that storm or um, this summer's Arctic ice, um, to trying to find ways to convey the, the, the profundity, <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, of of what's what's unfolding as a way to motivate change in a different way, and the, so the film, from the activist standpoint, and the discussions from the scientist standpoint, all are, are pointing toward uh, getting to these longer timescales that um, and getting comfortable with you know doing what you can and accepting to some extent that we are, we're in a profound state of flux on the planet for for many 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 generations to come. It's not a problem to fix. It's bigger than that. That doesn't mean you stop. And I think that's good. That's a positive feedback. Jacqueline?
2: Yeah, so I had um, thought about a, a sarcastic one, which is the, the story about the Twinkies, or the Twinkie that was from the oldest Twinkie, 1976, uh, which is in here in, in Maine in Blue Hill. And it's, it still looks great. So um, it was a part of a science experiment, and it's it's currently on display for some reason. But, um, you know, I guess the good news is that Twinkies will indeed be the post-apocalyptic food that we all hoped that they would. So that's, that's great news. Um, but, uh, then I was going to say something sarcastic about polar bears and, and how they, um, you know, they're, they're only like 400,000 years old and they interbreed with brown bears all the time. So they're probably going to be fine. Don't worry about the polar bears. Um, but my, I think my real one, uh, would be yesterday, um, the, uh, uh, AAAS, the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the, the main or top uh, scientific organization in the, here in the U.S. and publishes Science magazine, which is, you know, one of the, the top two scientific journals in the world, um, sent uh, sent a letter to Congress yesterday, was co-signed with 31 of our leading U.S. scientific organizations, including the Ecological Society of America, which I'm a part of. Um, basically, it was this really clear sort of no-nonsense uh, message that human-caused climate change is real, it poses risks to society, and it's backed by overwhelming evidence. And so it was just really nice to see um, our, our sci- scientific uh, societies. And, and the current. Uh, uh, president of AAAS is Rush Holt, who is a, himself a former member of Congress, just promoting this message, um, and especially because you know for a long time scientific societies and these are all not completely nonpartisan, um, you know wanted to avoid any kind of advocacy because of the possibility of being seen as not not being honest brokers in terms of their science, and uh, and so it's just it's just very nice to have these nonpartisan organizations. Um, urge Congress to take climate change seriously and to stop messing around basically so it was it was, it was a it's kind of a kick-ass moment I was like yes
0: yeah and so um, I think we will just leave it there please follow us on Twitter at our warm regards and subscribe to our feed on iTunes and SoundCloud and I think we're on uh, Stitcher and TuneIn now too um, we want to make this your show as much as we can so, if there's something you want to talk about um, or want us to talk about, let us know. And that's it. For Andy and Jacqueline, for our producer, Stephen Lacey, I'm Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody.